All right, welcome everybody. Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we have PJ Way on the show. And it's kind of special because the only other person that calls me PJ, PJ, is uh, my father. And uh, so he calls me PJ. You're called PJ. And it's another Phil. We have another, we have another Phil on the show. This is, um, you know, that's always a special plus. It's always a special plus, you know, when you have, when you get two Phil's together, especially two that have been called PJ <laughs> and are called PJ. And the other thing that I've noticed that's very special about you also is um, there is something on your LinkedIn profile that looks almost identical to a Starbucks mug that I also own um, with coffee in it. And I have a stack of Starbucks coffee mugs that from various different cities that I collect that tend to uh, collect on the bottom of my car, on my desk, stacked up. So, anywho. And the other thing that's interesting is you have like 9,351 followers, and I also have 9,000 followers. So, the, the parallels here are scary. It's, it's, it's scary. And I don't know if anyone else that is, is scary. excited, you know. And, and you have a beard that's coming in also. That's um, you know half half gray. I have a beard that's half gray. So look at this. Could it get any better? I know, right? Well, what's funny about it is the uh, the fact that you collect those mugs. I I, I started that probably about uh, I would say four years ago. My wife and I started making a bunch of trips. Got a chance to travel, so I was you know everybody would like knickknacks or 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 magnets for their refrigerator. I collected mugs. They thought, eh, you know, it's kind of a unique idea. I could. Always, I have this cabinet that's full, full, full of these mugs. Yeah. I don't have to do it anymore. So. Yes, and um, and they're useful. It's a useful collection hobby. You know, it's not like, uh, although if I start, if I start making fun of gnomes, someone's going to get mad at me. So I don't want to like lower my, my listening, my listening base or something. Now, here's the thing though. The, the difference is, is like, you really are in technology. I kind of pretend to be in technology, but you really are in technology. You're the director of, of, of IT at Northern Arizona University are in a much warmer, I'm assuming much warmer area than me. And, uh, what, what got us connected was this this discussion of ethics in technology and uh it's such a wide i mean if you even said that would anyone even know what we're talking about and i think it really relates more to you know data the collection of data uh what are we doing with data and i can't remember if it was you or someone else that told me to watch that new uh oh Netflix documentary on the the Facebook thing. Why can't I remember it right now? My brain. I need more coffee. Yeah, I can't think of it either. But that's a fantastic. fantastic yeah. Um, you know, so the the whatever dilemma or whatever it is, but the social dilemma, social dilemma. There we go. Came back to me. Uh, so, what is ethics in technology, or is there even a? Is there even a? There's no book really written about this. There's no, or there probably is. But what are we what are we talking about? Yeah, good question. You know, I mean, there are there's. It's funny because in healthcare, um, there's a lot of ethical standards about behavior, practice, um, what to expect from your physicians or healthcare workers. Um, when it comes to police officers, same thing, law enforcement, firefighters. You know, we have we have a certain ethical standard which we expect mm -hmm. in their behavior, the things that they do, the way they act. Yeah. Um, technology, we have, we have a couple governing bodies that are really guidelines, but there's not this deep expectation, I think, across the board for most, most IT professionals. And, and it's kind of, uh, it, it's not just the IT professionals, but technology is in the hands of everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so ethical behavior isn't just the standard by which uh, a practitioner in the career field of technology should be recognizing or understanding it. It should be something that people <laughs> in general have a proper behavior and understanding of ethical behavior and technology. Um, and so that goes beyond laws. I mean, it, it does exist in certain fields. So we've got HIPAA guideline compliancy. We've got SOC 1, SOC 2. We've got different PCI compliance. We've got things like that. But do we have anything that says um, IT director got fired and he stole all the passwords and won't give them back and disappeared off the face of the earth? Right. We don't have, we don't have that right. asterisk. Um, so what are some of the areas you think where people, well, I guess, what are some of the areas that we need to be more ethical in or at least have some standards, I guess? <laughs> well, I think, I think part of it would be helpful um, more from an educational standpoint, I think for most of our society of, of understanding ethical behavior with technology. Um, just because we have the ability to do certain things, does that mean that it's, it's ethical to do that? Um, and and I, I could point to several different things in, in today's environment. You know, um, when we talk, talk about ethics, it's, um, what's a good way to put this? It's the expectation of behavior and, and what people do with information because technology isn't about just a piece of hardware. It's actually about the data and what it represents. Mm-hmm. You know, um, things like the social dilemma that we you, you mentioned earlier, that's a great point to are we acting ethically with the data that we have access to? Um, and in today's day and age, we have situations where we have a pandemic, we have concerns over healthcare. Um, but when we're asking people to self-identify or even, even beyond that, we're asking institutions to start protecting one another, protecting others by disclosing personal data. Um, you know, I, I could use an example, of a very generic um, example. If you, if you talk about a classroom, a classroom has 30 students in it in a K-12 district. Suddenly they're, they're back in class and the teacher says, hey, one of the students in here is currently ill, so make sure you, when you go home, tell your parents and get checked out. And everybody looks around the room and realizes that Johnny's gone. Well, is it Johnny? What, what ethical standard have we just practiced about privacy and that person's safety and, and well-being? <laughs> because, you know, in today's age, you have fear, you have panic. Um, yep. and, and it's not just students, but it could be the parents' behaviors that become dangerous. So we have to have ethical standards about how we communicate and what, what it means to have somebody's privacy. Um, and, and I can point to other areas of, of ethical behavior. You know, we talk about the digital divide. Everybody hears that term. The digital divide means the has and have not the technology. Well, I think, I think it's further than that now. I think it's a lot deeper. It's not just about hardware and access to the internet and access to connectivity to your schools or to your healthcare, but it's also about uh, the digital divide of ethical behavior. We, we tend to grow up in circles of what, what is the normal practice inside of one home isn't the practice inside of another home, yet we suddenly thrust everybody onto one platform or one environment that we're expected for communication and proper behavior and proper, proper standards of, communi- of just communication. That an ethical barrier tends to get broken, if not a social barrier. So how do we how do we overcome that becomes a, a bigger obstacle, I think. Mm. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, give me some more examples. I like the well, that's a school example. 
Uh, I saw, sure. I, did a sh- I did a show with Mike uh, Auerkirk uh, a couple weeks ago on, on security and, and how to help. But, you know, the, the less, the, how did we put it politically correct? The less technically uh, adept people, you know, manage security <laughs> is how we put it uh, politically correctly. But he's saying, you know, I went to go just like order a pizza today and, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm getting text messages and, and emails from them because they collected my information at the kiosk. But did I double opt in for that information? You know, there's another example right there. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 from a a, a privacy standpoint, um, you know, I think that the, the pandemic has really caused. Um, I think it's really drawn to light standards by which. People that are leaders that have leadership roles with technology, they have to be the guardians of that data. Um, just because their their superior or supervisor, manager, president, whatever, ask for specific pieces of data, there has to be some kind of check and balance about what are you doing with this data? Why? The question of why should be, you know, we, we should use why as a, as a standard. There's a great book that uh, by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And really, if you... If you look at that, that'll answer a lot of ethical questions. Why are we doing something? And when we identify what that is, if it, if it seems to be a, um, a good goal, a noble cause, what checks and balances have we then put in place to make sure that it maintains just that? We can't with the, the proverbial genie out of the bottle just because we want to do something. Because once that information's out there, what else can be done with it? And, and how does that get released? And what do we have for protections for people and individuals mm. and this is getting back to why IT directors or technology-minded leadership people or nerds, as we might call them, and I mean that in the, in the, non, the non-geek squad way, because someone got mad at me the other week and they're like, you know, you know, if they wanted to go work for the geek squad, you know, they'd like whatever, you know, something like that. When I was like, you know, when I mentioned dissecting private IT nerds and he, he compared me to the geek squad, which is quite defaming um now i've completely lost track of where i was going with the (laughs) ethics thing anyways back to the start with why there's another thing to backfire on because i love the why question and my kids know it too so if i just tell them no they're like why (laughs) you know it kind of backfires on you like why now i'm going to give you the what what why i'm going to do well the reason why is because um but oh now i just remembered see uh, this is why IT directors, technology leaders, and those should maybe maybe be the fearless leaders of our new world. Because I believe that in the eighty twenty rule, I believe that eighty percent of society is totally screwed up and unable to make ethical decisions whatsoever, let alone vote. And people are going to get really mad at that because we're kind of you know biologically driven by desire and to meet our own needs. So putting this data in anyone's hands with what you can do with it, it's, it's hard to expect the mass, the mass of society that's trying to, whether it be crime, the corporate ladder, survive, sell another burrito so their business doesn't go out of business or another pizza or whatever to uh, not use your cell phone number to send you a coupon. Right. Right, and, and it's it's funny because you you know Phil, one of the things that uh, recently happened, you know, it's it's ironic how the awareness of people is developed around 
um, a lot of times emotion rather than logic. Um, behaviors are, are patterns of, of something they desire rather than is this the right thing to do sometimes. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's funny because recently um, Elon Musk had tweeted about this, this cryptocurrency, Dogecoin. And what was interesting about that is if you if you watch the Twitter channels and just just read just observe I mean don't even participate just see how people react. We'll have some people that are supporting it because they understand that um, there's there's some relevance to the topic of cryptocurrency. We're gonna have others that find it offensive that he's using quote unquote his power, his his authority or or leadership right the vision that people look at, at him with some trust and and maybe. Uh, and unwarranted gun, but and they think that he's abusing his power to to make such a comment about supporting something. Well, if it were a paid endorsement, they'd be fine. Nobody'd have an argument. Nobody'd say anything bad about it because it's a paid endorsement. But because he has an opinion, suddenly people find it to be this a question of ethics. Should he be doing that? Well, that's a start, right? We're scratching the surface of what is an ethical decision and what was the intent behind it. So once again, we have to go back to why. Why did he say it? If he wasn't doing it for an unethical purpose, but he was doing it because he's trying to promote a, a concept or a thought, well, that's, then he's doing what, he should, what, what is not a bad thing, which is challenging people's status quo of concepts. Um, whereas we talk about we're, we're going to require X behavior for X purpose, but there's no real why as to what's the end goal. When, we, when, when is it? Is it proper for us to mandate such things? Um, what happens to that data about people and their behavior? Um, I mean, I know that institutions, counties, counties today and across states are collecting data on their citizens about their behaviors, their patterns, where they're going. I, the Internet of Things is collecting data about traffic flows, um, yeah. capturing how many people are gathering in a specific location. Well, isn't there a degree? Where is the degree of oversight to say, what is the intent of this that we designed this tool and technology for, and are we using it for that explicit purpose, or do we have another intent? You know, and not everything's mysterious. Obviously, it's just are we are we really evaluating it properly? So it's a and it's a matter of not the technology neutral. Technology doesn't do anything for us until the person behind it actually does something with it. So we have to have some kind of expectation of ethical standards from one another. And I don't know that that's communicated in, in social media. It's not necessarily communicated in schools. It's not part of our dynamic as, as, a, as a society sometimes. People might just have to choose to go off the grid. How did they know, <laughs> how did they know during spring break where the COVID breakouts were happening? How did they know, like, where people were congregating? How did they know that? Yeah. From GPS, cell phones, from cell phones. And at what point did someone say that's okay to do that? They just knew. They yeah. just couldn't do it. And should we, and, and who has the authority to allow that is a, is a question as consumers. You know, um, what, I actually, unfortunately, I get a chance to teach at another university, and one of my subject areas we have to talk about ethics specifically in technology and it's a matter of who owns your image even i mean that just having that conversation boy i only get a week to talk about that in that course and i really could build 
probably a good eight week course specifically on who owns your image and what ethical rights do they have to your image? What have you signed off on just by simply being inside of a, a building? Mm. What protections do you have for your data, your, your integrity? Your I didn't sign a, um, I didn't sign a model release form. So uh, yeah. why, why, why do you have my, we had that all the time at Starbucks. I remember people would have to sign model release forms if you had some picture at like an event or something, but no one's doing that anymore. They probably are like, you know, big corporations, but the majority of people are not, um, you know, memes. How do we control the meme generation? Like I generate memes and I just hope that maybe someone doesn't have a copyright on something. I try to find him on like Twitter or something like, Hey, do you mind if I use this for a meme? And he's like, yeah, sure, man, go ahead. Uh, but you know, for the most part, there's a ton of that going on too. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's a ton of art, um, art sites that are out now that use NFT tokens to help authenticate the originality of the art. Well, it's interesting because some of the art that you see is really, um, another image that's been popularized and, and does not have a copyright on it. So suddenly somebody's going to put an NFT token assigned to it, and maybe they now have, are the proprietary owner of that image. Hmm. Kind of interesting to see where that could change as well in the future. Let's hit the opposite here, because we were talking about this also. What about places that don't have internet? And we were talking about delivering education, uh, education to places without the internet. Yeah. What, you know, that's like a whole nother thing. Like, like here, we now want to deliver you this problem. <laughs> we want to deliver you the ethics problem where you didn't have it before. So there you go. Yeah, that's one of the challenges. Um, so I, I do live in Arizona and rural Arizona, parts of rural Arizona are some of the most unique experiences I've ever had in my life to understand the challenges for the economy, um, the, the family dynamics, uh-huh. um, cultural acceptance. You know, there, there are some very unique needs inside of uh, rural America and trying to get rural areas connected to a, a fiber backbone, to get them connected so that they have access to the Internet on a regular basis. I mean, there are many areas around here which are very underserved and have no, no means of real um, immediate connection to the Internet. So how, how do you, when we have an expectation that you can't go to the DMV without going through the internet right now, or you can't do, you can't communicate with your physician without having the internet, is that an ethical behavior? Are we just putting an expectation of what, um, of, of what technologies are convenient for a majority of a populace and then setting that as a standard when really we're forgetting about the people that, and parts of our, our country that need a different form of connection? They need a different form of, of communication channels. Um, and, and I don't think that's a, that's always an afterthought too. It's a matter of, well, let's worry about the 80%. We'll get the other 20% later. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, it's, it's ironic because it's almost a hypocrisy in one, in one conversation, but compared to another, we expect everybody to follow this, but we can't deliver this for everybody anyways. So it's, it's a challenge. And, and then trying to get, once, once that connection does exist in those rural areas, that goes back to the, a new digital divide. It's not just the divide of they don't have the technology. Well, once the technology is delivered, are they prepared to operate in an, an environment where people are not necessarily acting the best way they should, with the best interest of the individual on the other end sometimes? Mm. So 
that's it's almost like a public end user. It's a it's a it's a group of public end users, and how do we educate them? Right. How do you how do you help get them up to speed on who to trust and who not to trust? What you should be disclosing, what you should not be disclosing. Um, when you click that little "I agree" button, do you really know what that means? Do you know what that's doing for you? Um, I've had the pleasure of, of traveling. You know, I've had the pleasure of traveling to other countries that are. I would say not as advanced or not as rich, say, as the United States, but very advanced from a governmental technology deployment standpoint, where it's just expected that everyone has a cell phone. Um, For example, parking tickets, speeding tickets, uh, you ran a red light, all of that is delivered to a cell phone. Instantaneously, you get a fine. Um, If you go, if you run a red light, sorry, takes a picture sends it to your cell phone, you've got a fine, you must pay that fine or you cannot travel or do this or do that until you've paid this fine. I've seen that work very, very well, especially with like speeding cameras. I'm just surprised we don't do that over here. Maybe it's we just still want to have, I don't know, police officers, sit, police officers sitting in a squad car to you know pull people over and give them a ticket. But I think that's like an easy technology thing that would scale back a lot, would eliminate all kinds, all forms of maybe just potential discrimination if people are worried about that because a, a, a speed camera a speeding camera is not going to discriminate it just gives you a ticket and that's it and uh, it certainly costs a lot less i don't know i just going off on a tangent made me think of, of technology and some other countries just I mean, they don't give you a choice you know because it's not maybe it's not a uh i don't know it's just like some countries just say no this is how it's going to be and you must register your license this way everything goes to your cell phone if you don't have a cell phone too bad go get one Sure, sure. sure. And, and you know, I think what's interesting about this conversation is, you know, I wish there was a really good solution to point to to say these are these are great examples of, of best use cases. Um, and technology doesn't always have a one size fits all depending on the environment that it's in. It definitely, so, you know. Yeah, I just hope it challenges. I hope if nothing else that our conversation today gets a chance to maybe challenge people, think about it, talk about it to, with with their peers. Um, maybe think about their their own practice. I mean, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate in the role that I have and the my, the team that I have around me are amazing people. Um, what's great is there is this same sense of ethical standards, behavior. When when somebody's asking for information, are we asking the right questions as to what what do you plan on using this for? What do you need out of it? And why are you asking so we can help you? We can better equip you with the best information to keep you safe and whoever you're collecting or whatever you're collecting data on safe. So it's, um, so you've probably been through, I'm assuming you've been through a lot of changes over the last year, a being in education, being in technology, COVID-19 people working for students have to be educated, educated from home or remote, remote classes, et cetera, et cetera. What were, what was the biggest challenge you ran into from a, an end user training standpoint and end users being a, a AKA students or teachers and, and how to use new technology. That's, that's a great question. I, you know, um, everybody has to learn how to adapt to the environment a little bit. Um, I think, I think the challenge was um, historically. So in my career, I had an opportunity to work, as I mentioned, trying to help develop technology in rural parts of the country, or rural parts of Arizona specifically, that um, delivered solutions to the end user. The challenge that I faced at that time was the adoption as a voluntary basis. 
I think this this situation has forced people into this isn't voluntary anymore. You your your options are either do it or don't. There's no there's no well, it's not even an option. You have to do it. Because we, we are not having classes in person. We are not allowing people back inside of these buildings. We are not allowing so I think the I think the greatest challenge was the acceptance of something that's being forced upon, if that makes sense. Yep. It's, it's, it's not that they didn't want to, it's just there was some resistance. Well, it's, it's resistance. It was resistance for, and, and somebody that's done something for so long in a certain way, suddenly being told they have a new format that they have to deliver, train, educate, um, experience. There were hits and misses. I think that was a struggle for both the faculty and the staff and, and for our students. Um, all of them had various degrees of success and challenge. Um, did, you, did you start with why? <laughs> well, yeah, you start off with why you had to do this. Um, and a lot of it was driven on... This this is not meant to be a, a, a statement, honestly, politically or specifically about the pandemic. I think in general, there wasn't enough information and people were making best guesses of what they had. So the why was we think rather than we know. <laughs> it was a lot of conjecture and, and a little bit of fear in some cases versus certainty. So we tried to err on the side of safety and caution and created environments which were, were much, much different experience for everybody involved. Um, and, you know, from a technology standpoint, we had to worry about security, scalability, accessibility, um, functionality. Can it handle the traffic? Because we went from a platform where um, a certain percentage of our traffic was online during certain courses of the day to exponential growth of traffic throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So there was, a, there was a lot of technical challenges we had to overcome. Bottlenecks. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, and we went from staff that were 100% on site for 10, 12 hours a day to nobody to 80% being offsite, 80% working from home or remote. So you have the new dynamic challenges of how do you stay connected to your teams? How do you stay connected to one another? Do we communicate effectively? Um, you know, and, and whether that's through the different platforms that are available, that was another challenge because everybody had something they like to use. Everybody had their own preference of, of sauce, right? Nobody wanted to use the same, the same hot sauce or ketchup or they all wanted something different and something mm-hmm. unique. That created a huge, huge dynamic of challenge because in the end, you... you Give me an example. Students. I need an example. Uh, sure, sure, sure. So, you know, not uh, to call out name brands, whether that's uh, uh, a Zoom call or teams. whether that's... Uh, Zoom teams, teams or Slack or whatever. Yeah, yeah. All that variety. The, the faculty member was comfortable in one format, so they would use that one format for all, for all of their classes. However, you have a student that has five or six classes, they have five or six different instructors with five or six different platforms in delivery. Oh, so annoying. That becomes a challenge for the student, right? And, and, and not, it's not to point to any challenges. I think it's about awareness because we all get stuck in our own little view and our own myopic challenge. 
that we're addressing the one thing that we need, whereas somebody like the students are facing the challenges on multiple fronts. So that was a bit of a, a, a challenge, I think, for this. I love that you said that. I love that you said that because how many students are dealing with, and I'd probably be one of those teachers. I'll just be honest with you. I'd probably be one of those, you know, oppressive, follow my rules <laughs> teacher that would be like, look, you will buy, you know, elements of style. You will write your papers like this. You will only use Slack. You will, <laughs> you know, I could see that, you know, and if you've got that teacher that's, that's like, you know, everything will be on time. I don't care what has happened. You will automatically fail if you do not bring me this this way. I've heard every excuse. You have teachers like that and there's students that sink or swim in those classes. And then you'll have another teacher that's, you know, maybe more, I don't know, reasonable. Uh, that becomes a significant technology challenge. And I think the yeah. learning experience here, because I do want people to take something away from this, the learning experience is that it's okay as an IT leader and IT director to say there's no turning back this is the system, this is the system that's being implemented and you must use it and there's no, there's no way around it. And I see it in hospitals and I see it in other industries where they spend millions on we're going to bring in Epic, right? Is there really any turning back? No, there's no turning back. And the doctors give them the most pushback or whatever because they're the highest in the hierarchy. They've gone through the most schooling. They're the most arrogant of the people. And they're the least apt to probably use it. They're like the last ones to come on board, you know, like being dragged over the finish line. They will use Epic. They will not use a sticker on a Manila folder anymore, you know, whatever it is. Right. And there's probably some teachers like that. Yeah, and, and and the environments, you know, um, my daughter. But the IT, but to, just real quick, I mean, to just state the point, like it's okay for IT yeah. to say, no, we're not using. I don't know. I don't want to say we're not using Slack because there's people that love Slack. Uh, we're using SharePoint. Is. You know, like, no, you know, we're going to use this, and that's it. Sorry. And I need yeah, your backup, Mr. President. I need the backup from the president of the company. I need you to, to back me up 100% all of the way because otherwise it's going to be like Armageddon. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of a role of technology leaders that, that really, um, in my career, uh, I've, seen, I've seen a big change in the way technology leaders have been viewed. You know, the, the CIO as a title, um, just to have that opportunity to actually sit with a president or to sit with uh, the owner of an organization versus years ago, uh, many institutions that worked for, they only had a director. It was a fortune 500 company and they had a director of IT. They didn't have a CIO. So when, when decisions were made related to technology, they were not necessarily given technology wasn't given input. They weren't given the opportunity to, to make a recommendation or to help, facilitate some of that conversation. Um, mostly because I think, and that's part of the challenges today is that everybody still has technology in their hand. A lot of people do. Um, and it's all around them. So they feel, uh, look, I'll give you an example. I, I talk to people that I, I, I appreciate sports. I'll talk to somebody and say, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, well, I work in technology. Oh, well, my phone. Yeah, I don't work in that technology, right? <laughs> or my, yeah, I don't do that. Right. I'm a doctor. You, I'm a doctor. Exactly. Well, you know, I got this weird thing with my knee. Well, I'm a urologist. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so it becomes very generalized um, still. And, but I do think that the, the greater, a greater respect and, and ear for what technology leaders know and understand when it relates to business, the end users, consumers, privacy, ethics, um, data management, all of that, that, that matters. Um, and it is important to, for any technology leader to have the ability to say yes or no and agree and disagree, but present the why. Explain why it does or does not make sense. You know, and, and know your audience is always important because if you're talking to the chief financial officer, well, I'm going to tell you this is going to cost us $1.2 million. If I do X, it'll cost me $800,000. And the $1.2 million, believe it or not, is going to be a better investment in the long term because, and explain it. You know, you can't always, you, you can't just share it as a dollar to dollar value sometimes in, in those conversations. You're talking to the, the president of an organization, you need to know the audience and what his, what his or her interest is. Are they, is that individual really interested in, in growth? Are they looking at, for stability? Are they looking for uh, recovery of, of the current environment? How do they pull it back to, to where it needs to be? Mm. Those all, the, all of that type of information will, change how you communicate a solution to a challenge. And, and that's where when it comes down to the students, uh, from, from my experience, is not just the, the technology in the classrooms or the delivery from the faculty members, but it's also we have to be a little more comprehensive in understanding what their experience is. Because many students that go to university have gone, have chosen a university, hopefully, because they like, they like the campus, they like the experience, they want to have a specific quality of life in that, in that knowledge gathering, right? They want to have some exposure to something um, where today that takes it away. And not only that, but sometimes they're penalized. In some institutions, I know some universities have students back on campus and, and um, this, this goes across the state just from different, talking to different counterparts mm-hmm. and friends. Mm-hmm. Um, the students are not allowed to leave their dorms if they don't have, if they haven't already scheduled the use of their restroom. They're not allowed to, to go to the cafeteria if they haven't planned the hours so they can keep control of how many people are in there. Is that, is that an experience that somebody wants to have? I mean, for that matter, they might have, they'll probably work from home if they're not actually able to attend. And, and to face penalties of, of being suspended or expelled because you don't have a mask walking across campus to your next class. What about the other so way around? I'd rather it the other way around. What about the ones that are so happy doing school from home now and don't want to go back to having to be on campus? <laughs> I think that's a big challenge for universities. Exactly. So I think that's going to be a big, that's a big question that a lot of, I've seen in circles trying to check, trying to take on as a challenge. What does it, what does it look like next year? What about the year after that? Um, will the students come back? And to what degree, depending upon the flexibility and what the environment looks like. My daughter's 16. She's taking college courses. She just got her license. She's killing it. And um, like just the other day, she got a note. She's like, Dad, I don't know if like, they told me like they're probably going to open up campus and like I'm going to have to go to campus. Like, well, she never got, never, never signed up for the courses to begin with the expectation to ever go to a campus. You know what I mean? Like she's taking courses, right. like, like who knows an hour away. She's only 16. You know what I mean? Doing really well in the courses. And they're like, well, we might open up the campus again. Well, can we just keep doing it the way we were? Because that's working out just great. Uh, right. right. So, and, and you know, right. it's funny because we, we, people should relate also to their personal experiences on some of these things because it'll help understand that they're not, they're not in a unique situation. Many people are struggling with what this is going to look like. <laughs> 
Do you have communication? It's ba- different. I, I'm thinking back in college, right? Like we had like analog phones. We had like, you know, type in the button and press send and nights and weekends, minutes and everything like that. It was a joke. Does school now have the ability, does the IT department have the ability to easily communicate with all professors and all students? Um, I think for the most part, it has improved. Yes. Um, is, that an ethical of- question? is that an ethical question? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's another thing too, is like, how, how can IT communicate with me? Like, like, what if it was like, could you communicate with all the teachers and say, Hey, look, we've got a, we've got a significant problem here due to COVID-19. Half you guys are asking your students to use Slack. Another third are asking them to use this. One person say use Dropbox. The other one's using a Facebook group. Uh, the other one's using, I don't know, Snapchat. Uh, this is a problem. We need to sure. unify somehow. Uh, can you, do you have that type of voice? Can you ask those type That's of questions? A question. um, many institutes, so me, me specifically or, or, I'm just curious. Like, yeah, you, I've got you on the, well, you're here right now live. So yeah, you. Yeah, I think uh, we, we do have input. That's the value, right? We, we do have the opportunity to get the right years of people and, and just have the conversation initiated and kicked off. I think that's, that's uh, part of the culture of where I'm at. I know that there are different institutions, different cultures and different behaviors. Um, and they may or may not have as much, um, an opportunity or influence to be able to make those types of a statement or to be able to make that kind of a suggestion. And, and I think um, that's what it is. That's about culture. That's really about the, the culture of an organization and whether that's a, a higher ed education or a manufacturing facility, you know, I, I loved working for, I worked for a fortune 500 company in the manufacturing facility and, and the, the difference of mindset and activity, um, Seemed, seemed extreme side of the spectrum of where higher education in general is. Higher education is a slow boat to turn on things mm-hmm. um, because they've, they've done things a certain way for a very long time. Um, and, I, and manufacturing has had to adjust to different changes in the environment, different relationships, you know, supply and demand. Well, Actually, money's on the line. Money's on the line in manufacturing. Exactly. We had something to do and it was, it was when has this got to be done? Well, next week. Oh, wow. Okay. So Whereas why do we treat I, education the same way? We don't treat education the same way because it's not like a it's not, swim. It's not, not a survival. Most, yeah, it's it, it is a lot different inside of it's it's a lot slower, a lot more methodical. Um, honestly, there's a little there's a lot more politics involved with with higher education. I mean, to be blunt, it's it does create some challenges. Um, it should, it, ideally it creates a healthy conversation though. Um, I know in certain institutions it may not. So that it's, it's hard to paint higher ed as a universal, with a universal paintbrush. Same with, with Fortune 500 companies or other, other businesses. I think every one of them is a little unique in their own way, yeah. but it's about uh, good culture. If you have a good culture, you, you can pretty much manage it well. Um, and once again, a good culture when it comes to managing a, a challenge is different than the ethics conversation again, right? Because the intent of, of an action, there's usually unintended, unintended consequences from an action you've taken. And if you haven't considered what those might be, or you at least ignore them, well, then you're, you're, you're really in for a, a challenge in the future. Yeah. The so ignoring no always the culture. Back. The, the, the ignoring will always find a way to, to, to root its ugly head at some point. 
will come up. It does. It absolutely does. After you've forgotten, well, you know, after you've forgotten that you've ignored something, well, that's that's when it's going to show up. <laughs> well, so I know you. That's funny. You and I have had this conversation plan. I think since November, we keep we've had to bounce it around a couple times. But so much has happened even since then, right? I mean, everything from uh, the presidential election and what's happened on social media to um, conversations about behaviors of, of somebody like Robin Hood that's made the news. Yeah. Where are the ethics for those institutions? Where are the ethics for those? Or uh, where's the ethical behavior of a standard? Whether you know addressing legal, not legal, constitutional, not constitutional. It's it's a matter of is, what's ethical. Did we did we practice good ethics in any of that? Well, I asked so, you before. Do you think it's too late? It's too late. It's, um, it's grown. The, the animal's grown too big. It's just such a wild. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna. I've got something here that I wrote down. It's funny. I I wrote this down today um, because something you mentioned earlier, um, what was it? And by the way, while you're finding that, you're the only person that I've ever heard mention the word conjecture, which is probably in my top 10 most favorite words. And it, I'm serious. You said conjecture. How many people use that and even think about that, even know what it means, right? Because our society is fueled by conjecture. We're fueled by conjecture. Twitter, fueled by conjecture. An opinion or conclusion formed on the basis of incomplete information. Right? Correct. Incomplete information. We are a society of opinions, and we feel that we have a right to our opinion. And I think you should take your opinion and put it in your pocket. It is. And it's a difficult spot to be, right? Because that's everybody... Everybody wants to be right. <laughs> you know, and, and so many things, so many decisions are made based on what? Conjecture. Yeah. Um, but I, I just want to touch base when you mentioned about, uh, is it too late? You know, it's funny because um, I was listening to Duncan Wardle um, speak and he, he said something that I wrote down, that creativity, intuition, curiosity, and imagination, those are four traits that cannot be programmed into any AI. Hmm. The thing is, those all four of those have one thing in common, and this is my opinion. My, all four of those have one thing in common. Those are they're not logical, right? Create, creativity isn't a logical process. It's it, it's it's this we we move with a behavior, or we like the way we, we think about it. Um, intuition, it's kind of our gut feel on something. It's not logical. We just know that somehow this is there's something wrong here. We're not sure. Or there's something right about this, and we, is it based on it. data that's been inputted? Is it based on historical data that our human bodies have acquired over time, and that's why we have a certain intuition about it? Is it based well, on think, you know creativity? Does that come from a like? Did we come up with this creative poem because we're trying to solve a problem based on data that was input? I mean, you know, exactly. Well, and that's like curiosity, imagination. The thing is, all, all four of those also that we're, we're products of our environment. That if we're not put in an environment where we're allowed to be those things, then we're, we're not going to be. Um, uh, and that, that goes back to our ethical behavior. Our ethics is not something that's tangible. And that and all of those point to, you know, go back to a, the conversation of maybe AI is it too late. Well, AI isn't ethical. It just does it. It does yes or no. It's, it's input-output. There's not a lot of logical, there's not a lot of um, emotional connection to 
an action that it's taking. Hmm. No emotional connection to what it's taking. So is it too late? You know what? Unless I think unless people start realizing that we're not robots and that we should be making better ethical decisions rather than something that just feels good. And an ethical decision is not always easy. Sometimes it's very, very hard. And it's the right thing to do. It's just very hard to do it. It should be an argument against atheism. I'm not trying to get religious on this, but I'm just saying. Otherwise, the code would correct itself. <laughs> right. Yeah. <I'd> <laughs> through, through, the, through, like a, you know, through an evolutionary process, our code would get better. Um, maybe some people are saying that it is, but uh, maybe the code will just mis- miraculously be be miraculously be better. Um, it's been uh, super good having you on the show. Uh, a lot of fun uh, talking about ethics. And if you had to, if you had any, um, you know, one piece of advice to deliver to people out there growing up in the field, we didn't get to really talk about where you started up in technology and, you know, what devices you were playing around with. But if you had a piece of advice for, you know, other IT directors, leaders out there, maybe people struggling with getting people to buy into the plan because we didn't tell them it has to be this way, what would that piece of advice be? Um. It's funny because if you hadn't said we didn't get a chance to talk about where I started, I think the one thing that influenced me to make me think about some of the things I'm doing is that I had really, I had a really good unknown mentors, people that I never told they were my mentor, but I picked up what was good and I left what was bad. And I tried to apply those principles to my behavior, my actions, the way I talk to people, the way I treat others, the way I um, communicate to my team. Um, I, I think you know, so what was something then, this is going to go on now, what was something yeah. that um, you learned that, because that is a theme, that is a theme that has come up quite often on this show. And it's, the theme, honestly, that's come up a lot is that the majority of people that I've had on the show, if I ask them, did you have any great mentors? The majority of them say no. Some have said yes. So what is one of your biggest say learning moments or takeaways that you've taken from a mentor that you would, that you would not have just kind of maybe self-discovered? Oh man, that's a good question. Wow. Um, See, that's creative, but that came yeah, with data I, that you just input into my brain. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, that's a really good question. I, I think one of, I think it was trust. I think the trust to succeed and the, tr- the trust to fail and then to learn from those mistakes, right? Uh, trust um, the process. Yeah, that's what it, I think that was probably one of the key things. I had I had some. Um, Ken Sweet was really my first IT director, and he's a fantastic human being. I was so young, and I didn't know much about IT, and and he trusted me. He brought me in to say that I knew one specific area, I knew one one specific tool, and I was the only one in the only one in that business that knew how it worked. Uh-huh. So he trusted me to come in here to figure it out. Um, and then train others and then learn more about other technology and other solutions. And, and it was just that, that intrinsic trust of, Hey, how are things going today? It was a quick check-in. It was never oversight. It was never overlording somebody. It was really this trust of if I had questions, I could go to them and ask. And I, and it was a respectful response. It was never. Uh, an, an so what was it like before that then? If that's something you learned from a mentor, what, what did you learn before that? Don't trust anyone. I mean, no, I think that was micromanage, matter. don't micromanage, you know, let people, let people learn on their own, that type of thing. Like, yeah, like I think, the I reins. Think before that, my, yeah, before that experience, I think it was a lot of, um, 
there was almost a sense of you did things because you had to not, not because it was the right thing to do or, um, uh, you had like a job, you had like a very clear job description. I come in, I do yeah, this like a robot. Exactly. Yeah. Don't step on other people's toes. Whereas, whereas I, I'm, I'm still in the mindset where nobody's going to step on my toes if they're helping me understand something. Mm. If they're, if they're making me better at it. How is that a bad thing? Mm. You know, um, it's, it was very, people, it was very letting positive. people step outside of the box. Maybe it almost sounds like let people yeah. step outside of the box. You don't have to just clock in and clock out and do one job. And that's a huge thing in it. It's a huge thing for it leadership because it's not just keeping the blinky lights on. Like no. you should help grow the business, help solve problems, help teachers not use 15,000 different apps and annoy, annoy the crap out of students. You know, right. you can go beyond the, um, emails working today and um, we've eliminated the tickets in the system. Yeah. And, and, and IT is a, is a business of, you can't really have an ego either because there's somebody that knows way more than you do in another area. Oh man. There's a lot of guys, IT guys with egos. That's a tough one. <laughs> That's a tough one. They won't admit it. They won't admit it. Humbling. <laughs> oh, outstanding, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it too, but thank you so much. And I appreciate the questions and the, the opportunity to talk with you. I hope you and I get a chance to do that again, even offline. Absolutely.